Well, about two o'clock this morning, as I sat up watching election results come in, I thought to myself, when I scheduled myself to preach on Wednesday, November 9th, the day after election day in the United States, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Now I'm not sure why, it seemed like it. Um, I also realized as I sat reflecting on a a message that I had already written, um, that there would be people listening to my message this morning, wondering if there was some hidden message in it. Wondering if my message were red or blue. Uh, Wondering about the entire worship service, actually, what hidden message we might be trying to convey, who we were supporting with our songs or our prayers or our preaching. Uh, Those of you who serve in local church ministries, people will be wondering that this Sunday when they come to your church. They'll be listening carefully to see if there is a hidden message there. And so I was grateful that this service was coming only nine hours later. And we didn't even have time to place a hidden message in this service, should we have wanted to. Um, I was grateful that today's service was planned far before any results came in, that today's songs were chosen for us to sing and praise to God, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. Grateful that we had already asked members of our international community to participate today in uh, reading and leading us to the table and serving us communion today not in any means of saying anything in particular about an election, but just by saying that this has been a very America-centered season for us, and we might have forgotten where we stand in God's kingdom, and that we might need the ministry of all the nations today for one reason or another. Um, I do know why I scheduled myself to preach today, and and that's this. As the pastor of this community, it was irresistible. It was irresistible to me to get a chance to speak to you on this day uh, when we're listening so carefully. And, And I wrote this message before I knew who would win an election, any election. I didn't have to wait for votes to be counted to know what I wanted to say to you today because it's my intention to preach the word and not the results. Um, I don't want to talk this morning about who's in the White House and who's not. I want to talk about the kingdom that knows no end and all the kingdoms that will end before it and the transition of power between those two. Um, The peaceful transition of power is one of the hallmarks of American democracy. When one party wins and another party loses, uh, there may be a lot of angry posturing and rhetoric, a lot of Facebook and Twitter, a lot of arguments in families and at workplaces, but in the end, we don't worry too much that one side will take up arms against the other side after losing. We don't see an ousted leader sent into exile the way that many other countries experience. I don't think I knew that until I became friends with people from around the world, that transitions of power are not always peaceful, and that there's a lot of fear in many places about what they will entail. Uh, When we experience a transition of power in our government, people almost always begin strategizing and readying themselves for the moment 
four years from now when we will do all of this over again. Lord, have mercy on our souls. But there's not a great deal of concern that the opposite party will plot to violently seize power. That wouldn't be the case if you were, say, the ruler of the people of Israel. More specifically, if you were the first king appointed to rule God's chosen people. Every moment of your rule would be a moment of questioning who might attempt a coup and come to seize the throne. When you read descriptions of King Saul in the book of 1 Samuel, there's a common thread throughout his story. See if you can pick up what that might be from these passages. From 1 Samuel 19, but an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. From 1 Samuel 22, and Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gebeah with all of his officials standing by his side. And in 1 Samuel 26, so David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Hear the common word in all three of those passages? What does Saul always have very close at hand? His spear. And and that makes sense. As the first king of Israel, he had a lot of battles to fight, to prove himself, to defend his throne. But it wasn't just in battle. Saul is sitting in these cases with his spear beside him in his own throne room, lounging under a tree with his own officials, even while he's asleep. He was not just afraid of an enemy that would come and take power. He was even afraid of the people within his own circle. And he kept that spear close just in case anyone approached Saul was paranoid that someone would come and take power and kingdom from him, and there was one person in particular that he was afraid of taking power from him, and his instincts were not completely wrong. In in 1 Samuel 18, we read that Saul was ready to use that spear at his side. Starting in verse 10, the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, surprise, surprise, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I will pin David to the wall, but David eluded him twice. That's not the only time that Saul tried to kill David with this same spear. It's remarkable to me that David continued to play the lyre in the courts, staring at the king on his throne with a spear so ready. Um... But the very next verse after David avoids Saul's spear says this, 1 Samuel 18, 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So Saul was protective of his own power, violently protective for good reason. And while his methods of expressing it with a spear weren't exactly orthodox, he wasn't wrong about the person who would replace him as king. And knowing all of that, it's even more amazing that David and Jonathan struck up such a close friendship, isn't it? That Saul's son, Jonathan, was not equally afraid of this young man in the courts that might seize power that could and should eventually become his as the crown prince. He's not only not cautious of David, Jonathan and David become the closest of friends. One of the most beautiful descriptions of friendship found anywhere, but in the Bible as well, is the description of the friendship between David and Jonathan. 
It's becoming clear as the story goes on, as Saul, in fact, suspects that God has chosen David to be the next king instead of anyone in Saul's family. So shouldn't Jonathan be jealous of him, angry and suspicious as his own father is? But instead, Scripture tells us that their friendship became so close that they were closer than brothers. God can do that. Even among people of differences, people who want different people in power, God can make us closer than brothers. Jonathan even blatantly disobeys his father, the king, to warn David of Saul's own plans to kill him so David can escape. And during all of this time, David doesn't take up his spear. He takes up his lyre again and again. He shows nothing but love and respect to Saul and his family, even when Saul is throwing spears at him or hunting him down with a search party in the wilderness. David never tries to harm the king, even when he has a direct chance to do so. He says he would never kill the anointed king of Israel. And and in the end, it's not David who kills King Saul. It's not even really the Philistines with whom he is in continuous battle. Saul does die in battle, and it is a battle with the Philistines, but uh, he's not killed by any enemy. Saul is mortally wounded in that battle and dying on a hilltop, and he's in such pain that he asks his servant to just go ahead and kill him. But his servant will not. Who wants to be known as the one who killed the anointed king of Israel? So to avoid dying painfully or in the captivity of his enemies, Saul falls on his own sword. Those weapons he keeps so closely at hand, he lives by the spear and he dies by it as well, committing suicide rather than facing pain and dishonor. This same powerful king who would not be without a weapon at his side to protect him dies at his own hand with the same weapon. And here's where the story um, of our own tradition of peaceful transition of power is one that would make ancient cultures and some modern cultures as well long for such a system where one person moves out of the White House on one day and one person just moves in the next day. Isn't that what we've come to expect in this country? Um, Besides the fact that the whole nation was affected by this loss, it was at their White House, their home of the royal family that one small person was affected more than anyone else. This person's grandfather, King Saul, and his father, the Prince Jonathan, were both killed in battle. This small person's name is Mephibosheth. And when news travels back to the palace that the Philistines have won the battle and wiped out his family, now the palace where the family has been waiting in safety becomes the most dangerous place of all because soon the Philistines will arrive there to wipe them out too. And so the servants and remaining family members flee from the palace in a hurry and Mephibosheth's nanny, while carrying him and running away, slips and drops him and breaks both of his feet in the process. Today we would take him immediately to a pediatric orthopedic surgeon to therapy, to people who would know how to cure this ill. But in those days, he was fated for life to spend his days on ill-repaired bones, unable to walk. When we hear the story of Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9, the first line of that story lets us know this. He was lame in both feet. 
And the last line of the same story repeats it again. He was lame in both feet. Those bookends let us know that this was his defining characteristic. The story of his life summed up in one short phrase. Mephibosheth will never avenge his father and grandfather's deaths. He will never ascend to the throne of Israel. He will never be a warrior like the men before him. He will always be dependent on others for their protection and provision. And at this point, his story is lost and forgotten. But as years passed, just as Saul had predicted and feared, David becomes king over all Israel. Not just any king, not any ordinary king, but the best king that God's people ever have. Someday you will serve in a ministry or in a church where people repeat to you over and over again, we just had a great pastor once, we wish you could be more like them. That's how David is for Israel. Every king after him is compared to him. Even when Jesus, the Messiah, arrives on the scene, he's immediately compared to David. A king like David is what the whole country will wish for after this because his power and his mercy are so great. And one day David makes a request that may sound innocent to us, but sounds menacing in the ears of those who heard it. Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Bring them to me. And to anyone familiar with how the monarchy worked in this system, this could mean only one thing. The king was looking into the previous royal family, making sure there were no loose ends left alive who would rise up to assassinate him and to steal the throne back from him. No potential challenges to his monarchy. Anytime a king had the offspring of the last king brought to him, it could mean only one thing. The spear. He was going to have them killed to protect his own power. Mephibosheth was a young man now. He had been living in hiding only, hiding only 50 miles away from the capital. And when the soldiers approached the pal- from the palace to escort him there, everyone knew, including Mephibosheth, what that probably meant. That 50-mile journey must have been an excruciating one for him. Being brought back to the palace of his childhood, expecting to die there, that palace that his grandfather built, that his father lived in, the one he was born into, and now that he expected to die in. Only when he arrived, David had other plans. From 2 Samuel 9, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied, don't be afraid. David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Here are the election results. Shockers. This is the October surprise. The twist that no one expected in this culture where there was often a bloody transition of power. Not only is David going to spare his life, he's going to return to him his inheritance. And he is going to welcome this young man, exiled because of his heritage, rejected because of his infirmities and weaknesses. He is going to welcome this man to sit at the king's table to eat with him as if he were his own son, to enjoy 
his protection and the full spread of his wealth at every meal, every day. David is basically saying, because of the covenant I made with your father, my best friend, I want to treat you like you're my own son, not my competitor and not my servant, my son. Come and sit with me and be part of my family. This is Mephibosheth's story, one that could have ended in tragedy in a non-peaceful transition of power, but instead ended in mercy and generosity by a man who was a different kind of king. Back in 2012, Jim and I had a chance to travel to Israel with a group of pastors led by our bishop from Texas to experience firsthand what many of us had only read about in the Bible and to walk in the places not only where Jesus had walked, but where many of the things in the Old Testament had transpired. It was an especially impactful journey for us. I was pregnant with Kate in 2012, and so the fact that we were carrying a life with us brought new meaning to every place on that trip. And one of the most impactful places on that tour was an ancient city called Beit Sheon. This is an incredible archaeological site with layers and layers of civilization being discovered there daily. Even our guide would say that between his visits, they kept uncovering new layers and new items. And they have uncovered and begun restoring Roman ruins there from around the third century before Christ, but they've found evidence of civilizations there dating back to the late Neolithic period, artifacts from five millennia before Christ. So, there are so many layers of civilizations that have been built up in this one spot that it's actually changed the shape of the landscape. You can see in the background behind uh, the columns that they've erected, that they've uncovered there, what seems to be a mountain. Part of the landscape of that site, this mountain, is called a tell. And what looks to be a mountain in the background it is actually no mountain at all. A tell is a mountain that forms when a civilization is built on one spot and it's conquered and crushed and another civilization is built on top of it. Then that city is conquered by another ruling power and crushed and another city is built on top of it. And, and the walls of this city have been built and conquered and rebuilt by so many people that the results are actually a man-made mountain or rather, a mountain made out of conquered men. Whole civilizations buried by other civilizations. A tell is a layer cake of crushed human power. And that's where I learned that one of those layers was part of Saul's story. After the Philistines found Saul dead by his own sword in the battle, in order to dishonor him in the best way they knew how, they beheaded him. They took his body and his armor, and scripture tells us that they carried it to the city of Beit Sheon. They hung his remains on the walls of the city as a sign they had conquered a great king. And the wall of their city, which was then conquered and crushed years later, was buried someplace in the tell at Beit Sheon. One of the layers in that mountain is Saul's civilization. As our guide told us that, and as I stood there staring at this mountain of men, I found myself more than a little in awe. First, that this was the exact spot that something in scripture had taken place. Really, in Israel, every step you take, you wonder if that's true. 
but also found myself wrestling with a whole different kind of realization, a very uneasy one, one that seemed a bit too, I don't know, morbid for the kind of joyful trip to the Holy Land we were supposed to be on. My realization was that every layer of that mountain was some group of people that thought that the time they were living in was the time that really mattered. Every person in that mountain was living and working and shopping and having families, and they thought that their priorities, their plans were the lasting and important ones, and they daily worked to build up a kingdom that they felt was lasting and important. But every kingdom was conquered, and another one pictured themselves strong and eternal was placed under the dirt. It occurred to me that maybe Saul was right to sleep by, with a spear by his side because there was always someone coming along to put you under the ground and replace you, to hang you on a wall and go on to build their own city with their own new king. And maybe it was jet lag or pregnancy hormones or some effect of the Holy Land that it just has on people. But I had an existential crisis right in the middle of an archeological site. And my realization was that I was someone standing in a civilization with plans and a calling and a family, things I consider very important, but that everything I walked on and everything I built would someday be buried. And some future archeologists would dig it up and study what we consider today to be a historic day in our lives. I know these are happy thoughts that you came to chapel to hear today. Glad I could cheer you up. But in that moment, what I also saw clearly was this, that there is only one kingdom that will never be buried. There's only one kingdom that never gets conquered, that the names of rulers have to be dug up for archeological proof, but there is one king, one ruler that is never beneath the dirt. The angel announced it to the powerless Mary so beautifully. He will be great, and we be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor, David. There it is. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Before Jesus' birth, we're already announcing that what he brings to pass cannot end that it will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is only one kingdom that has no end, and that is the kingdom of God. And we, friends, have a chance to invest in that kingdom. We get a chance to build on something that is lasting, something that is not meant to conquer others, but to rescue and bring them into this same kingdom. We can invest in building the kingdom of God, or we can go on, living our lives as if the things that we plan matter, but we can count on the fact that they are finite and someday they will fall. But if you're searching for a way to give your life to the kingdom of God, know that it is not in vain. There's no crisis needed today for those who invest themselves in the kingdom of God because it is the eternal kingdom and its king is the one who will never die. Uh, there are those who have tried to conquer this kingdom. There are those who tried to bury our king, but he didn't stay under the mountain. 
They buried him and he rose out from under it. We can continue to search for ways to build the kingdom of God, the one that will never end and to worship the king who will never die. The common thing when we tell stories like this in sermons or Sunday school lessons is that at the end of a biblical story, we often make a dichotomy for people to choose from. Which king would you like to be like? King Saul or King David? Will you be a king who sleeps with their spear by their side, seeing others as competitors, fighting with those who have differing opinions or loyalties? Or will you be the kinder king, seeking out someone to whom you can show kindness and love, adopting into your own inner circle the powerless, the marginalized, those who need your grace and protection, choosing not the path of revenge, but the path of mercy. There's this tendency that we, we try to sum things like this up. Which king will you be? Will you be King Saul or will you be King David? But let me ask this. Um, in the power-loving and power-grabbing world that we live in, why is it that we always need to be king in this story? I mean, really, who said that you could be king? We have one. And he's not taking applications for replacements. So if you're going to identify with a character in this story, let me offer you another possibility. What about Mephibosheth? What if Mephibosheth's hidden little story here seemingly so um, trapped became too powerful, between two powerful kings reminds us that it's not what we choose to do with our power that is the most meaningful and lasting in the kingdom of God, but what we choose to do with our weaknesses. That it's actually our weaknesses that get us admitted to the table. Instead of even the arrogant Saul, instead of even the merciful David, what if I'm just another crippled Mephibosheth? And what if you are too? And today we get to come to a table where we're invited not out of our strengths, where if we peek beneath the tablecloth, you will see all of us are seated around dangling our mangled feet under this table. That we're coming not out of our own power, but of our own need for a rescuer who has come in power, whose kingdom will not end. All of us have infirmities and weaknesses and sins and struggles. I would say they are not accidents, but God's gifts to us so that we know our need for his power. All of us have them, those who sit in class and chapel together and those who teach and preach in front of class and chapel. But those imperfections are not disqualifications for grace and mercy. They are actually invitations to grace and mercy. When we come to this king and discover there's no need to cover ourselves, but that brokenness is welcome at the king's table, where we sit not as a competitor to power, not as one who even offers power, but as a child who is offered meals again and again. Um, you can gaze with the rest of the world on power this week. We will talk about it until we are done talking about it, and then we will talk about it some more. Um, we will talk about power over and over again, but I would remind you that power always ends up under the mountain. And it's a king who came in weakness, emptying himself of all but love that brought in the kingdom that will not end.
So this is the real transition of power that we're concerned with today. Not who will move out and who will move in, but will you move out? (laughs) Will you place all things at this altar today? This space for prayer will be one where you can come and lay down anything you need to lay down when we come to this table, but also one where you will find yourself covered and protected and welcomed by the king. Take off our armor, bury our spears, and beg for mercy equally at the table. My friend and mentor, Ellsworth Callis, who died a year ago this week, said it this way, No one struts to this table. No one comes bearing armor or sword or strength. It's your weakness that gains you access. So just be welcomed in your weakness. Know that the invitation to this table reads, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Let's pray. God, we're grateful We're grateful that you show us in your rule what matters to you. We're grateful that you reach out to us even in our infirmity, even in our lack of qualification. Lord, even in our pretending to be powerful that you still want us at your table. God, will you help us? Will you help us to be Mephibosheths? who come bearing not our own strength, but desiring yours. And will you help what we do in worship today before you change what we do in our interactions outside of here today? Make the moment of change the moment we encounter your body, your blood, and your kingdom that will not end. Amen.